Before we get started, we just recently found out that we were awarded the NASPEGAN Foundation Terry Lee Young Educator Award. We're all so shocked. Thank you all so much. It's truly an honor, and we are so grateful. Yeah, we thank you to NASPEGAN. Thanks to our listeners, and also, of course, thanks to all of our guests. You know, we bring all of this uh, information to you guys, to our listeners, by facilitating conversations with amazing experts. And really, they're the ones that are are providing such great educational value for our listeners. And so thank you to all of our guests as well for all that they've done over the past four years. Yeah, we just ask questions and then record it. And that's it. So yeah, it's pretty crazy. And I think it's especially meaningful uh, that, you know, Dr. B. Lee was, of course, one of our first guests and a big supporter of our podcast in the early days. So even it makes it even more meaningful for us to get this award. So thank you, everyone. Thank you. Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPEGAN. My name is Peter Liu. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Jason Sillerman. How's it going, Jason? It's, it's going well. How are you doing, Peter? Good, good. It was exciting to have only our third international guest. Yeah. Third. And from mm-hmm. down under. Mm-hmm. Our first guest that is joining us, you know, visiting from Australia. Of course, right. we had Justine Turner of course. Um, on a candidate episode last year. One of my colleagues who is from Australia, but is sort of an honorary Canadian at this point, although yeah. firmly still Australian. <laughs> so, but this was our this was our first, you know, direct international guest from Australia for sure. Yeah, definitely the furthest traveled. Just to be, no, not really just be on our podcast, but to be on our podcast. So we want to give a shout out to Dr. E. Thank you so much for joining us. And to talk about a topic that I feel like we are all very passionate about. I think most of us think we're really good endoscopists, but who really knows, right? Dr. E would know. Yeah. Good thing she did not do any direct observational or whatever she called it. But but I think, you know, especially as an attending... Once you start doing your thing, you're like, oh, I think I'm pretty good at this. But you don't get like, no one watches you anymore and uh, no mm-hmm. one's like tracking stuff. So maybe they should, as we talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think she raised a whole bunch of really good thoughts around managing colonoscopy. I'm not going to you know rehash the episode. Mm-hmm. Everyone's going to listen. But definitely that idea of evaluating your own practice and maybe even considering having someone sit in on your colonoscopy because we can all stand to learn, um, yeah. I think is a really good one. It also made me want to go to uh, Australia, specifically Brisbane. It's it's definitely on the list. It, you know, we, we have so many countries that... Uh, since having kids, we have not mm-hmm. yet visited, and Australia is definitely on the list. I have, you know, I have uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Matthew Carroll, who is is from Australia, and he shared this video. Uh, it's sort of a mock tourist video that says, uh, uh, "Come to Australia, where everything can kill you." Um, <laughs> but, but, but we, seriously, though, all, all kidding about giant spiders and oh, snakes and things like that aside. Uh, I would love to go to, to Australia. There's so many amazing uh, places and and sites and uh, weird, but also very fun animals to to check out either from like a distance, like koalas or wallabies. Mm. Wallabies are actually one of my personal favorites. So really? Small kangaroos. Huh. They're, they're really kind of cute and you can 
they're less likely to drop kick you into oh, yeah. the next I've room. Seen, some like of those kangaroos, kangaroos are jacked. In, in <laughs> okay, moving on. So yes, we have this amazing topic with this great discussion with Dr. Louis E. So she is a pediatric gastroenterologist at Queensland Children's Hospital in Brisbane in Australia. Uh, she did her fellowship training in Cincinnati. So uh, it was connected to some of our faculty here and came and visited us in Columbus. So we took that opportunity to do a uh, podcast interview. Uh, and importantly, beyond being a pediatric gastroenterologist, relevant to this topic is she's the medical lead for the endoscopy service in Brisbane. She also um, happens to lead their intestinal rehabilitation program. But uh, she sits on their national, so the Australian National Certification Committee for training in GI uh, endoscopy, the conjoint committee for recognition of training in GI endoscopy. And she's the the pediatric representative on that panel. So uh, a really high value guest to have covering this topic. All right. On to, on to this show. show. All right. So Dr. E, thank you so much for joining us all the way from Brisbane, Australia. You know, it's an honor to have you here as our third international guest. And today we have a very exciting topic, in my opinion, talking about the challenging colonoscopy. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for having me around. I trained in pediatrics and in gastroenterology in Perth, Australia, but then I did my pediatric GI fellowship in Cincinnati. Yeah, so the so American down the system road. and uh, some of your colleagues are familiar to me. Yes, yes, yes. So Dr. Gaudet was the one who connected us, one of your co-fellows. It was great to take this opportunity while you're here in Columbus to snag you for an interview. So we're going to start with perhaps our most challenging question. So for our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in just one sentence? Okay, so I'm an Australian pediatric gastroenterologist with a strong interest in pediatric endoscopy, especially quality indicators, but also I look after the intestinal rehabilitation service in our center. Awesome. Okay, that was a sentence. Nice. That was really good. <laughs> there's, there's a lot there to unpack, but like Peter said, thanks for so much for joining us. And we haven't had anyone else from Brisbane so since you've already brought up that you, you know, I think you you did your pediatric GI fellowship in Cincinnati Children's, but then you went back to Brisbane, which neither Peter nor myself have ever been to. And lots of our listeners, uh, lots of our listeners have never been to Brisbane. So tell us a little bit about Brisbane. Like what is the one thing that we would need to see or do or eat if we were to make it over to Brisbane that uh, the average tourist might miss? So Brisbane is actually well known in the cricketing world uh, for being the home of the iconic Gabba Stadium, which mm. is one of the centres which all the cricketers go to. But when you come to Brisbane, you should also check out the Gallery of Modern Art. It's also very close to Steve Irwin's Australia Zoo, where you can go oh. pet a koala. Oh, yes. And of course, the tourist blurb about Queensland and Brisbane is that the weather is beautiful one day and perfect. <laughs> oh man! I think they say the, th the same thing about Ohio. Um, no, no, it's actually very rare to have perfect weather here. But that's awesome. Yes, I think we both would love to go there. So maybe when, uh, if you're having a conference sometime, need a speaker, just let us know. Well, Jason, the I'd be. Olympics are there in 2032, Ooh. so you should come. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. That is awesome. That's, okay. That's something to plan for. We'll put on our calendar. We'll do some more uh, podcast uh, interviews there. Jason, have you been to Australia? 
I have not. Mm-hmm. I have not. And we, um, I, I know they are only relatively close worldwide, but uh, we have good family friends in New Zealand. And so we have promised a trip down to the other side of the earth at some point. <laughs> and it would be really great to be able to do both Australia and New Zealand at the same time. Uh, we just need to bank some vacation time, I think. Yeah. We, uh, I stayed in Sydney for like one night. Right. And uh, we need to go back. I yes. feel like this is probably such a typical touristy thing to say, but I do want to hold a koala. <laughs> I feel like uh, Sydney was beautiful, but uh, it was it was also we went to New Zealand for a couple of weeks, and then it was like we got to come back to Australia one more time here. And I and I should have said that I'm surrounded by Australians here at work because we have three people who either are purely from Australia or who spent substantial times uh, amount of time in their life in Australia before coming to join our division, and one of our former colleagues has left our division and and is now in Melbourne. So uh, we have close ties to Australia here. Name them. Uh, So uh, Jason Yap left our group and is now doing intestinal rehabilitation in Melbourne. Hmm. And then uh, Matthew Carroll, who is from uh, the Sydney area, and Justine Turner, who was on uh, running for an SBGAN president last year, and she's from Perth. Awesome. Hmm. All those Australians are known to me. I actually remember Justine as a resident. Not that what? she <laughs> not that she'll admit to it. I'm sure. And I only saw Jason last week. In fact, earlier this week at um, CERTA, the oh, yeah. rehabilitation. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Okay. Wait. Okay. I, I feel like we can't let that go. So where where did you did you you worked with Justine when she was a resident in us? back in Perth when we yeah. were both residents? Oh. Yes. Oh, that's I crazy. With Justine. Yes. That's awesome. I will name drop you to her right after this. <laughs> Just as long Put her on the she spot. doesn't mistake me for Vicky, who oh. was also in fellowship with me at the time in Cincinnati. So. <laughs> okay. So, okay, okay. We got to move on from Australia talk. But, you know, before we get to our topic of the challenging colonoscopy, how did you discover and foster your interest in endoscopy? So when I was a resident, I found that I really enjoyed doing medical procedures. So things like intravenous lines and central lines and all those sorts of things. And I found that it was fun to do and I enjoyed doing procedures. So I tried to pick an area where I would do a lot of procedural stuff. And Mm -hmm. endoscopy seemed to be an area. And then as part of my training, I actually spent 12 months doing adult GI. And during that Mm. time did a lot of endoscopy and found it very fun. So I guess that's my that's where my interest stemmed from. I remember, uh, so Dr. Goudet mentioned that he was very intimidated being a co-fellow with someone who did a year of adult GI training and was already super experienced in endoscopy. Right. But um, yeah, so basically like, yeah, procedures and just that love just kind of continued right. as you... I yeah. did give up a lot of colonoscopies for Praveen to do because they said, you don't need any more practice, <laughs> so you can do them. So, yes. so it was a good arrangement for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as somebody who is familiar with endoscopy, both in the North American context and in Australia, what are some of the differences between the two? I mean, I know I, again, hear about it locally from my Australian colleagues, but what are some of the differences that you have noticed in the two regions in terms of how people approach training endoscopy or performance of endoscopy? And can you tell us a little bit about endoscopy certification in Australia? So in Australia, um, since 1990, we have a committee called the Conjoint Committee for Recognition of Training in GI Endoscopy. And it's it's overseen by the gastro 
Society of Australia, but it's endorsed by the College of Surgeons and College of Physicians. And this society, um, this yeah, this contract committee then lays down the guidelines as to what is considered acceptable training for certification in certain procedures. And the procedures that are involved are things like upper and lower GI endoscopy for both adults and paediatrics, ERCP, um, endoscopic ultrasound and capsule endoscopy. So the committee consists of four gastroenterologists and four surgeons, and I happen to be the paediatric representative on that as well. We also include rural endoscopists as well, so that way it's reflective of the people that perform endoscopy in Australia. So I guess the biggest difference is that it is mandatory in Australia for you to be certified by the conjoint committee. Um, if you're not certified, it's much more difficult to actually get any position. And that's often the first thing they'll say is, are you certified? And with the certification, there's obviously certain criteria that we expect you to be able to perform. So that that's uh, probably the big differences. And then there are some other minor differences as to, you know, arguing as to what numbers and what sequel intubation rate and what else you need to do. Uh, the other thing that has developed, though, in endoscopy, particularly colonoscopy in Australia, is that there's now this concept of recertification. So the contract committee just looks at your training in endoscopy. So it just sees whether you've been adequately trained. But in recognition that some people who train don't subsequently do a lot of procedures or they may not be technically as able, they've now developed this thing called recertification. So recertification then, and I think we're the only country in the world that does this at the moment, recertification means that you have to prove that you've done a certain number of procedures regularly and the standards for recertification is actually higher than for training as well. Um, so in the last year, it's become mandatory for adult endoscopists to be recertified. In paediatrics, it's still optional, but a lot of us are moving towards that as well. Wow. You mentioned that there are certain criteria to be certified initially, and I know there's lots of debate everywhere about numbers, yeah. particularly in paediatrics, when you know we know there are differences between centers in terms of access and just volume, procedural volumes. Could you give us some sense of some of the criteria that are used to, to judge that someone has been adequately trained? So, so the criteria is for paediatric colonoscopy is at least 100 procedures, of which at least 75 have been in those age 14 or less. And that's to stop you loading up with all just adult patients. Yeah. Um, and it's a 90% sequel intubation rate. And then you need to have two adequate satisfactory supervisor report and also what we call a DOPS, um, a direct observation of procedural skills report, which then in which the supervisor then has to say that you're actually competent in, in performing the endoscopy. Now, Great. this criteria is actually slightly lower in that the recertification criteria, we've actually added in ileal intubation. Hmm. But for the initial certification, that's not a requirement at this stage. Interesting. Okay. Jason, do you guys have any requirements? Like, I mean, we don't have any formal requirements, but we do have, I, I feel like we follow the NASP again, right. expected like 120 or more colonoscopy. Yes. My, kind of my understanding is that there is no, um, it, it's not a compulsory thing to yeah. be recertified. There's some recommendations that NASPGAN has made mm -hmm, mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. certain numbers. And I think it's about a hundred as well, 120 mm -hmm. and yep. 90 to 95% sequel intubation. Um, but Marsha Kay's group, which was sort of by NASPGAN, 
African in 2019 suggested a 90% ileal intubation, which is pretty high. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Penguin, there's the there's a joint Naspigan Espigan initiative, the Penguin um, endoscopy recommendations, which have recommended 90% sequel and 85% ileal intubation. But right. there may be some debate as to how achievable these numbers are. Yeah. No. I, and and Peter, to answer your question, we we don't have. I mean, it. First of all, there are no sort of national requirements mm-hmm. in Canada to to require a set standard for numbers of, of completion. And even at each training program level, those numbers are not necessarily you know carved in stone. Right. They're sort of aspirational targets to shoot for. They sort of give us a little bit of an idea, a framework, maybe. Yeah. And it's been a few years, but I feel like we also didn't really track like sequel intubation rate and ileal intubation rate. Although, you know, so... Uh, Dr. E gave a talk to our division this morning and brought up the idea of like periodic audits to have to track that even for attendings. I think that'd be an awesome thing. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was explaining to the fellows just before this, like when you become attending, everyone thinks that they're a great endoscopist, just like how I think at the stat is like 90% of drivers think they're an above average driver, but we don't really know. We all, I only see myself and like, I'll ask the techs and the nurses, but you know, it's hard to really get a, objective assessment. So that kind of brings us to our topic today, which was kind of talking about what are some of the techniques that we should maybe be thinking about or following, especially for the more challenging colonoscopy. Um, So we want to go, we've been kind of of moving towards using a a case. So today's somewhat generic case is a boy who's having rectal bleeding and uh, we want to perform a colonoscopy. So just a quick question, just like out of curiosity, what is the usual bowel prep you use for maybe a younger kid, maybe for a teenager? What do you do in Brisbane? As you all know, there's lots of different bowel preps. So we tried to standardize so that there wasn't like six sets of instructions. Yeah. Um, so for a child who's age two or more, we use something called picosalix, which mm. I think in North America is called picoprep as mm-hmm. well. It's a combination of picosulfate and a bit of uh, citric acid, and it's an outpatient prep. Um, but For the little kids, those less than 15 kilograms, we actually admit them to hospital because you have to remember that bowel prep is actually quite dehydrating. So whenever you do a bowel prep in a small child, they actually have to have some fluid maintenance. So those children get the equivalent of a colon lightly prep whatever the hospital has a contract with at the time. Yeah. 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 So so basically that's it, where that's the big washout prep. Interesting. Jason, what do you guys use? We, we use Picosalix too. Oh man. For about prep. Yeah. And the challenge that we faced, I don't know, Dr. E, if you have as well. I certainly find that Picosalix works really well so long as the child takes adequate fluids yes. with with the med- with the medication. Yes. And our challenge is always the message about the importance of the volume of fluid that is required, not always landing or being followed. Uh, is that what you see? Yes. So, yes, we have the same issue in that it's difficult to get them to drink enough. Um, and also, after a while, if you've ever done the prep yourself, you get sick of drinking as well. But because <laughs> it's not the bowel prep, which tastes a little bit nasty, um, we say, look, you can drink water or lemonade or something clear or juices or coconut water, which seems to be very trendy. And the other thing I also tell them is I do allow them to have those jelly sweets, you know, mm, like those okay. jelly snakes to just take that taste away. Yeah. Uh, because again, they're considered, you know, 
they'll they'll wash out pretty nicely. Sure. Um, and interestingly, in adults, there is a bit of a move to using a very low residue diet. So rather than being strict and not allowed to have anything else to eat while you're doing your bowel prep, there's some thought that maybe a little bit of a low residue diet may actually improve their tolerance. We haven't tried it in pediatrics. We know about it, um, but that is something that may come on. In yeah. Interesting. Yeah, we uh, we've done. Actually, I think we were part of a study that uh, looked at like a picosulfate-based prep, but we don't use that. We uh, like have always used. Uh, <laughs> speaking of like not being able to drink enough, like high volume uh, polyethylene glycol thirty through fifty mixed with you know whatever drink they want, fourteen capsules, and for like an older child, and bisocodal tablets uh, a couple times a day. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like. I'm just so, curious. So the, main, so the main difficulty with the high volume preps is that they can't do it. Yeah, they can't right. drink it. And also some of the other preps that they have, they tell us it's way too nasty. We just yeah. can't drink this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I think our... so the pico salix is slightly salty and mm. it's lemony flavored. So they don't mind it nearly as much. Yeah. I also allow them to sometimes put in like Kool-Aid or mm-hmm. cordial or whatever, just to flavor it. I also tell them to use ice because if you mm-hmm. chill it, it takes the yucky taste away a little mm-hmm. bit as well. So I tell them to chill it, use a bit of ice. And then, of course, if they're really stuck, I go, well, just pinch your nose and scull it. <laughs> then, then, have, yeah. then have a jelly snake and then drink your water and I you'll be fine. <laughs> so so yeah. scull it is the Australian term for chug it? Correct. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. Okay, right. nice. Yeah. The context, I, I, think I the, figure it out. I think the ice uh, tip is a good one because the Pico Salex for people who haven't used it, I always tell Warren kids that are old enough, especially the high schoolers who have done a little bit of chemistry, that it's an exothermic reaction. <laughs> so it actually produces heat as the crystals dissolve in water. So it actually, you get this kind of warm, fizzy, citrusy uh, flavored drink. So I think the ice tip is a really good one. So moving on from the bow prep, you now got the this young guy on the table, asleep, ready for the colonoscopy, and you start the colonoscopy, and you realize, oh no, he's got a fairly redundant sigmoid colon, which is every you know junior colonoscopist's worst nightmare. Maybe even for advanced endoscopists, they don't like it. So, what are some of the things that we can do to avoid looping in this redundant sigmoid? Okay, so so the three areas that people tend to get a bit stuck in during colonoscopy is by far the most common would be the sigmoid loop. The other two areas that people sometimes run into trouble is at the splenic flexure and also at the hepatic flexure. But um, if you think you are going to have a redundant sigmoid or possibly if it's a small person, the first thing I would actually do is put your inflation on low because a lot of people tend to overinflate the colon which then distends and elongates it which then makes it a lot harder so before you even do that I would put it on low so you're less likely to do that the second thing I actually tend to do especially if it's a very small child that I'm doing a colonoscopy on is to actually put some abdominal pressure on the left lower quadrant so sigmoid pressure because then that actually helps you to actually not get as much sigmoid looping so that's before I even start. So maybe when you're just in the rectum and you're just getting there um, and you are anticipating difficulty, they're the two things that I would do to start off with. I'm curious your take on this, whether there's any importance to the direction which you're pressing on the left lower quadrant. So if it's just placing your hand flat against the left lower quadrant and pressing in, or are you trying to angle towards the umbilicus or any particular direction? 
generally I actually just get them to press the hand because what tends to happen in very small children or those with the loop is that when you go in, the colon actually forms a bow and causes a mesenteric stretch. Uh, whereas, but just by putting your hand there, you actually reduce that degree of stretching. And so that makes it a lot easier. In the people that are obese, it's less likely a problem. And also in the bigger children, it's less likely of a problem. But certainly in the very small or the very thin, it tends to be quite problematic. Just like sometimes you get a little bit of the bowing of the scope when it's in the stomach in a very small child. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, when you're doing a colonoscopy in a small child, you get a bit of bowing of the scope. So just by putting your hand there to prevent that, it just makes it a lot easier for you. I like that. I feel like people have told me in the past, like in uh, to try to avoid looping, uh, to potentially steer more with torquing versus using the knobs. Is that something that you would agree with or that's, I don't know. It depends. So a bit of both. So with the um, the smaller the child, the more likely you're going to have to do tip control. Mm -hmm. um, the bigger person, then you can just use a lot more of the insertion and pulling out as well. But I guess the main thing is you need one of the most difficult things I think for nearly everybody doing colonoscopy is to pull back. Yeah. Because it's the most counterintuitive maneuver <laughs> that you're going to do, and you think oh my goodness, it's taken me half an hour just to get here. She wants me to pull back. Right, right, right. Uh, but by pulling back, what you're actually doing is firstly, you can then see where you're going uh, because you're getting your scope away from the mucosa. You can then actually view to see where you're up to. The other thing, if you pull back, is that you might actually reduce your loop as well because mm. that's the other thing you can do. The other thing I also tell people to do is when you do the torque maneuver, your tip, should not be straight because if you do torque maneuver with your tip straight you're just kind of rotating the scope on its mm -hmm, on mm -hmm. its own axis uh, what you need to do when you do the torque maneuver is you should put your tip either up or down or left or right because then it angulates the tip and what you hope to do is then to open up the fold mm -hmm. the other thing in terms of doing the torque maneuver is again a lot of people will instinctively when you do the torque push in as they do the torque but in fact what you should really do when you do the torque maneuver is actually pull back a little bit because then that opens up the fold for you and then actually allows you to see where you need to go oh that's great and so i guess continuing that theme so let's say we do start looping up we're trying to push the scope in we're not making any progress we're moving backwards how do you think through the different techniques of trying to reduce and in advance? Sure. So the first thing I'd do if I was stuck would be I would pull back a little bit mm -hmm. so that I can see where I'm going um, so that my scope is not hard against the mucosa. The next thing I tend to do is I actually deflate mm -hmm. because quite often, you know, because you're stuck, you've actually overinflated the scope. So the next thing, as I said, the second thing I'd do would be deflate. And then the, after that, it depends on a bit on what I think is actually going on. If it's because it's actually a fold, occasionally I will jiggle the scope. By jiggling the scope, you sometimes allow a bit of air to get into the fold. And when that happens, it opens up the fold a little bit. The other thing you can do is then you can do the torque maneuver as we discuss. And then if you're still stuck, pull back a bit further to try and reduce your loop. And the next thing you can do is obviously you can put pressure on the left lower quadrant because by far the most common area that you loop is in the sigmoid. And then if you're really stuck, you can then change the position as yeah. well. Um, I find changing position in pediatrics is a bit harder because often the patients are anesthetized. So it takes, a, you know, so it just is a lot more. You need an assistant to help, several assistants to help you turn the patient. So if they're left lateral, I turn them to the supine. Mm -hmm. 
And then if they're supine, like how we do here, then maybe moving to left lateral. Possibly. 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 Um, yeah, possibly. I don't tend to move them very much yeah. if they're really supine. But yeah, so if they're left lateral, particularly if you're stuck in the sigmoid, I, I put them supine. Yeah, yeah. And if you're still really stuck after <laughs> all that, pull your scope right back. And sometimes I find it's easier to just pull back to the rectum rather mm -hmm. than keep persisting because often you'll keep persisting and you're still stuck. You've tried all those things and it hasn't worked. So it's easier to actually, and quicker I find, to just pull back again to the rectum and try again. Yes. So don't get too hung up on losing yes. some of the ground. Yes. That's the biggest thing that people <laughs> find difficult is to pull yeah. back. And I keep telling our trainees, I go, you know, you got there anyway, so pull back and then try again. You'll get back again. And <laughs> that's the, what people find very difficult. To yeah. Do. But then they'll be like, oh, but it took me, you know, exactly. like you said, 30 minutes me, to get there. It took there. me half an hour to get there. But it'll worry, be faster. You'll get there in a few more minutes. You'll yeah, be faster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's right. And I guess just to clarify, so the torque maneuver, I mean, we're talking about uh, retracting and then turning the scope maybe uh, clockwise. So, so you kind of do it simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So the torque maneuver is when you rotate the scope either clockwise or yeah. anti-clockwise. So you can do it either way. But as I said, when you do the rotation, um, you should actually have your tip not straight. So your tip should be right. either slightly angulated because the purpose of the torque is to actually open up a fold. But the main thing to remember is as you're talking simultaneously, people will instinctively do a torque and push forward. Sure. But in fact, what you should do is when you do the talk is to pull back a little bit and that'll open up your fold a little bit better for you. Mm -hmm. I guess I mean like, so in, tr in terms of like reducing a loop, um, do you typically turn a little bit clockwise when you withdraw or do you... Just, or just not really. Yeah. Just de depends. It depends on where I am and where I'd reduce the loop. But I guess the other thing is pulling back is, should be a maneuver you do very often. Mm -hmm. So every time you insert, when you turn a corner, if you can try and reduce the loop. And what you're trying to do is to concertina the whole <laughs> I was told that Americans didn't understand this term, but that's we, not quite true. Dr. Well. card. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to concertina the colon on across to the scope so that you can then get to the cecum around the 70 centimeter insertion mm. mark. Um, that's the recommendation for an adult size patient. So obviously if you have a smaller patient, then it has to be slightly less. But the main reason you want to do that is because then it's going to make your ileal intubation so much easier. Yeah. Jason, are you familiar with this word concertina? So I was going to comment that <laughs> it might be that the North Americans are, maybe this is a weird Al Yankovic thing. They're more uh, accustomed to accordion. Yeah, yes. That's what so I like said. The that's big exactly. musical instrument, whereas the concertina is the smaller, more handheld version of the same type of instrument. Oh, that's what it is. Okay. Yeah. Wait, so concertina so, is a mini accordion? It, it, that's my understanding. I'm not a musician, but I understood that a concertina is often like the, the smaller one. And, and if you go to like folk festivals and stuff like that, depending it's, on the bands, you might see it's some of them. perfect for a pediatric call. There you go. So it should be concertina. It's not oh, an accordion. Although having said that, I was telling Peter earlier that um, nowadays our practice is so wide. I scoped a th three kilogram child and then the next <sighs> patient was 130 kilograms. Yeah. So it was just... <laughs> oh, geez. But uh, concertina. So... Learning all kinds of new, voc no, new <laughs> vocabulary, but yeah, so that's super helpful. I think one thing we you know, briefly talked about this morning is uh, honestly, for me, it was like on Twitter, I follow a bunch of adult GI docs who talk about underwater colonoscopy. So can you explain a little bit about like, what is that concept? And is that something we should be trying or what do you think? 
Um, yes, so we haven't used it very much in Brisbane, but in fact, your colleague Muhammad mm-hmm. was um, saying that he finds it very useful. So, so the purpose of underwater colonoscopy is what you're doing is you're filling up the sigmoid with water, and by doing that, it actually drops the sigmoid colon and makes it a lot easier for you to, to then actually advance. Um, it's also very good if it's a very tight splenic loop, because again, because it sinks the sigmoid colon, it just makes it a little bit easier. But when you do sigmoid underwater colonoscopy the tricky part is that if the bowel prep's very bad yeah. you will have to wash a lot so that you can at least see where you go and you tend not to put too much air in or hardly in fact no air in if you really want to do the full underwater colonoscopy Jason yeah, do you that's, use that? No, that's, that's a really great comment and I was going to share the same thing that um, I, I've certainly tried the underwater colonoscopy it can be useful but that the comment about the bowel prep mm-hmm. is the one thing that I was going to say because you you know you get lost in a snowstorm mm-hmm. very quickly yeah. if the bowel prep is poor. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I've also I've tried it some for like really tough sigmoid area colonoscopies, but I agree sometimes it just gets really murky and it does not help at all. But anyways, some interesting things to think about for someone who gets stuck. You, uh, Doctor E, you mentioned. Briefly, just to kind of tack on to something you said earlier about um, when Peter was asking about techniques of withdrawal, for example, to reduce a loop, you mentioned it sort of depends on where you think you like where you've gotten stuck and what type of loop that you think you have. Can you walk us through a little bit about how your approach will change depending on location? Obviously, sigmoid colon is the most common place to loop and an alpha loop would be the most common type of loop. But what are some of the differences and you know as you're kind of walking through your sort of troubleshooting algorithm so Yes, the the most common area of looping is actually in the sigmoid. The other places that you can also loop is actually the transverse as well. But quite often, rather than worrying about the type of loop, I actually just get you to withdraw. And as long as you've got a good one-to-one feeling when you've got the scope, then you know that you're not too bad and you've actually adequately... um, Concertina call on <laughs> over the scope. Um, it's when you don't get good one-to-one where when you insert the scope and the, your mucosa hits further away, that's when you're looping as well. Uh, but again, what I try and do is after every corner, I actually try and pull back the scope so that you can then get more scope back as well. So, And, and I do that more than worrying about the type of loop that I actually perform. Um, so in some centres, people have used something called a scope guide, which tells you whichever you know, which tells you what type of loop you have and things like that. It's quite good, but I quite often don't allow my trainees to do it, and part of it is because they're so distracted by the yeah. scope guide, <laughs> they're not actually that. paying attention to yeah. what I'm trying to tell them. Nor are they watching. And the other thing you have to remember is it's actually useful to learn the techniques on how to get yourself out of trouble mm-hmm. rather than just looking at the scope guide. Yeah. So that's why. I Sometimes I kind of say, no, i like you to do it without it because I want you to actively think about how you're doing and what you're actually doing. Because one of the difficulties with colonoscopy, especially for some of the senior people, is that while they're very technically proficient – 
they can't actually tell you what they did. Uh-huh, so yeah. you'll go and say, so what did you do that I didn't do well? And they can't actually explain it to you. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's this concept of becoming unconsciously competent. I don't know whether you're yeah. aware of this, where you know mm-hmm. you start off your unconsciously incompetent and then you become consciously incompetent and then you're competent and conscious, but finally you're unconsciously competent. And that's probably what happens for a lot of advanced um, endoscopists and you have to actively then be aware. So again, the other thing I do when I'm training um, colonoscopies is I might stop them and say, okay, what's the next plan? What's your next manoeuvre? What manoeuvre are you going to do next to get you out of this? And then that brings them back to being conscious of what manoeuvre they're actually going to do to get themselves out of trouble. I really like that. And and we'll put in a plug that we previously interviewed Catherine Walsh um, about uh, teaching in endoscopy and a couple of things that you mentioned really resonate. The first one being the pause. So, you know, not trying to ask them what their plan is as they are sweating and trying to work <laughs> things out, but you actually stop them and say, yes. okay, stop. Yeah. What's your next plan? And, and kind of let them think about it and come yeah. up with something more concrete. And that a lot of us are challenged and need to work on putting ourselves back into the conscious competent stage and voice what it is that we are doing or that allows us to be successful to help the trainees work through as well. I also just wanted to actually ask you a little bit about the imager, like using the imagers like the scope guide, because we have access to it here. And I think you make a really good point that it can be a useful tool. But if you spend too much time looking at it, and fixating on it, it can actually take away from what you're trying to achieve. And I attended a talk at uh, CDD, uh, uh, CDDW, which is Canadian Digestive Disease Week, uh, about the use of imagers. And the speaker posed a question, showed a short video of a scope advancing in the colon, and with the inset uh, 3D scope guide image in the lower left corner, and showing a very clear alpha loop, but also importantly showing that the scope was advancing very easily through the colon and pulled the room about what would people do next, you know, continue, withdraw, torque, etc. And the majority of people answered some combination of withdraw with or without torquing, counterclockwise, clockwise, whatever. And the answer really should have been to carry on because you had a stable loop with one-to-one advancement. And so you can get really thrown off by the imager. And so just knowing where its place is. Fascinating. Yeah, no, I agree. I, th- I think it's a useful tool, but it shouldn't be the only thing that you use. And so... Part of much to we had a trainee who came from elsewhere and he was quite appalled that we had one but we didn't use it much. He said, no, <laughs> we actually want to teach you how to do all these other maneuvers and to actually be thinking about what you're doing next yeah. as opposed to just concentrating and fixating on the loop. It's interesting because we do not have that, but we've all been like, oh, yeah, we should get that. That seems awesome. But it's kind of a fun toy. Yeah, but I can imagine <laughs> like if I'm. I would probably get fixated on that from like starring a loop. I can imagine it changing what I'm doing, even if I don't need to change 
right at that moment. And, com- and coming back to training, so mm-hmm. in Australia, um, we also have something called Train the Trainer. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's TCT, so Train the Colonoscopy Trainer, where they actually talk to you about how to actually train someone in endoscopy. And one of the aims they try and get you to do is to actually talk someone through a colonoscopy without you touching the scope itself. <laughs> and that is yes. so much harder than you think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, that's great. I mean, so we... We have that at NASP again, um, but I have not done it personally. Jason, have you? Uh, no, I haven't. And so, uh, again, we talked to Catherine Walsh about that. So, in Canada, there's a C program, uh, SEE, which is um, Skills Enhancement for Endoscopy, which is primarily an adult program, but there is now a, a sort of a parallel pediatric track. And that's what uh, Catherine and uh, Doug Fishman have brought to NASP again for the hands on sessions. And they have the train the trainer add-on element to it. So once you've done sort of the C course, you can then level up to Mm -hmm. be a trainer. And it's all about what Dr. E was saying, you know, to give you the skills and the awareness of the issues involved with how do you instruct someone else. And I think it's, I think it's really great to to think with your hands in your lap (laughs) about how to help someone through a colonoscopy. And to use, um, I think the other thing that uh, Catherine really highlighted was the use of, we're trying to standardize language mm-hmm. around the instructions that you give to the trainees so that when they're working with one endoscopist, they're not being told, you know, go left, go right. But then someone else is saying clockwise, counterclockwise, and someone else is using a clock face analogy. If we, everyone is using sort of similar or very standardized terminology, it helps the training as well. So after that, uh, that pause in the procedure, we're now following your tips. We get to the cecum. We reduce all the loops. Um, but it's not obvious where the ileocecal valve is. What are some tips for identifying where that IC valve might be and getting into the TI? So when you get to the cecum, there are three cecal landmarks. One is what we call the triradiate fall. In Australia, we call it the chook's foot, which means the chicken foot, <laughs> because it looks a little bit like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The ileocecal valve is a, another landmark, and the third landmark is the appendiceal orifice. Now, normally the ileocecal valve, you'll get some idea of where it is just because it looks a little bit fleshy, or sometimes as you're watching, you can see bubbles coming out of it. But you're right, sometimes it's not immediately obvious at all, in which case I then use the Jerome Way arrow sign where the appendix is crescent shape and the arrow that goes through the middle of the appendix then points towards the ileocecal valve. Also, when you're actually at the appendix, often it's the wall closest to the appendix and that's Hmm. your actual um, ileocecal valve and where your terminal ileum is going to be. I love it. I feel like we'll need to include some uh, links to some pictures. Well, we'll do that in our social media posts about this. I think we should actually include a glossary in this episode in the show notes. You know, Australian GI slang. <laughs> so instead of the chook, we often, like locally, we'll call it the crow's foot. But it's a similar idea. And I've always found that the sort of, uh, what do you call it, the talons, the toes, the, the crow's foot, uh, that they are pointing in the direction of the ileocecal valve often as well. But the bubble sign is a good one. Yes, yes. So we've made it through. We've completed our full examination of the colon and the terminal ileum, and we don't find an obvious source of bleeding, despite our very, very careful inspection. So on withdrawal of the scope, for the sake of completeness, we want to do a retroflexion in the rectum 
to have a good look down there and see if we can identify perhaps a, uh, something that we've missed. So how do we approach doing retroflexion in the rectum? And are there any patients for whom we should avoid tr- trying to do this? It's interesting. It seems to be kind of a popular thing in North America. We don't tend to do it very much, I have to say. Um, and I probably would not do it in a small child because mm-hmm. I think it's going to be pretty tight. There's not much room and, uh, and the angle of the scope in a colonoscope is probably too big to cope in the in a small child's rectum. But if you want to do it in an older child, when you do retroflexion, you firstly do have to inflate the rectum um, so that it's a bit more distended. And then you actually then use your big wheel to put the manoeuvre down and push forward. A bit like the way you do a U-shaped manoeuvre retroflexion to have a look at the fundus of the stomach. So that's that's how I would do it in somebody that I wanted to retroflex and had a look at the rectum. So inflate the rectum and then use your use your wheels so your, um, to actually sort of angle the tip either down or up or left or right. So some people use left or right. Jason, is that something you routinely do? Not routinely, uh, personally, but there are a few cases where you know you're really suspicious that maybe somehow you've gone past a small polyp yep. or something that might be right at the anal verge that you feel like you might not otherwise be able to visualize then then that might be the reason to retroflex but it's not something i would do commonly yeah i agree it's usually like in the scenario where like i know there's a polyp like the parents saw it you know but i just didn't see it but i agree it's I feel like for little kids, you might try if there's any resistance or difficulty, I just let it go. But uh, so, yeah. so that's the other reason you do a rectal before you start, mm-hmm. um, because then you might get some ideas to whether you'll feel something there or not as well. Yeah, that's a good point. So finally, okay, so now we're done. But I think we should probably, you know, we could talk about complications in a whole full another episode. But just to kind of touch on that briefly... So for the diagnostic colonoscopy, so what are the maneuvers or perhaps the locations that have the highest risk of perforation where we should pay extra attention? And what are some ways we can minimize that risk of perforation? Okay, so I guess one of the ways to minimize your risk is don't push if you can't see. Yeah. And always be gentle. So a good colonoscopist, when they do the colonoscopy, it's like watching someone play a a musical instrument. So if it looks as though they're wrestling with the patient (laughs) and the scope, it's not going to be a very good colonoscopy. Um, Now, the site of perforation by far the most common is usually from the sigmoid mesenteric Mm -hmm. stretch as well. So often that's where the site of trauma is. But the other group of patients that can also perforate are those that have significant transmural disease. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes in some of the IBD ones, if you overinflate, they can actually perforate from that as well. So always be gentle when you do a colonoscopy. I tell people gentle hands and soft hands and don't stretch the sigmoid as much. So pull back often as well. And that will then reduce your risk of perforation. If however, you're doing a polypectomy, the the right colon is actually quite a lot thinner. So a polypectomy on the right colon is where you're most likely to have a perforation post polypectomy. Those are really good tips. Soft hands like that. Not wrestling. You're a musician. <laughs> That's right. With a concertina, apparently. Yes. So someone who does it well, um, your trainee will look at that and say, this looks so easy. I'm sure I can do this. <laughs> That's a good Until point. they yes. actually do it. And then you think, oh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that, we, you know, Peter and I have 
talked about. We we had uh, some discussion at our single topic symposium last year about this. But you know, endoscopy continues to improve with advancements in technology, and technology is always moving um, moving things forward. What improvements do you see changing our endoscopy practice in the coming years? I think um, AI is very big in adult endoscopy, but they're currently mainly using AI to identify sort of polyp and mm-hmm. polypoid lesions, which are sometimes quite difficult, especially some of those serrated polyps. So that, I think... Um, will be useful. The better scopes, obviously, now they're using things like chromoendoscopy scopes, which will help identify dysplastic areas will be good. But ideally, the other thing for pediatrics is if we have smaller size scope or scopes, particularly for small children, that also eventually would be something that we'd be keen to do. But obviously, paediatrics often gets neglected because we our numbers are much less than the adults. But certainly in the adults, the big things that are coming is the AI. Um, the other thing I guess that's also advancing is a lot of the therapeutic endoscopy, things like poems for lots of different areas and those minimally invasive type procedures as well. Obviously, we're not doing it because there's a bit of a crossover with the surgeons, but there are obviously lots of people, including some people in your centre, already doing mm-hmm. things like poems and other advanced endoscopy. Yeah. I'm, I'm still holding out hope for the self-driving lunar yes. module colonoscopy oh, that, I, that I that? found. Well, we could, you could have a remote control drive controller it. driving it on the where's inside. Where's fun in doing endoscopy if you've got something that can be done? Oh, man. But I, I agree. I mean, you know, you could have a little, you know, take little biopsies, put it in the back of your little rover, drive it all right. the way out the bottom, pick it up at the end. Anyways, they talked about that for capsules, but I don't know that that actually eventuated. But that yeah. seriously, they did actually talk about a capsule where you could drive and you could then use the capsule to target a lesion and biopsy the lesion. But I don't think that it actually came into real time practice. But that was one of the things then, they talked about for capsule endoscopy. Yeah. Okay. This. So the little plugs, as we're recording this, there's still right. time before the baby shark tank two so uh you know maybe for next year for baby shark tank three people can submit their idea for uh drone capsule exactly right yeah jot down right right everyone write down our idea uh this is gonna be the surefire winner no one's ever thought of this before nope (laughs) you know once again i guess you know thank you so much for coming to talk to us about this topic that we all as gi doctors feel so passionate about but looking back on your career from like a personal development standpoint, what do you think is the most valuable advice that you received either as you're in your training or maybe as a junior faculty member? And what advice do you have for our listeners? Probably the most valuable advice I actually got, especially when I was trying to decide what to do was from Colin Rudolph, who actually just said, just follow your passion and you have a passion in this clinical area. So you should do that. Um, so I think that's probably what I would recommend because obviously if you follow your passion, it never quite feels like a day of work. It always feels like a day of fun. So that's good as well. So, yeah. Uh, and advice, I guess, try continuously learning. I think, you know, it's important to always keep learning and always try and do your next colonoscopy better than the last colonoscopy. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, no, those are great bits of advice for, for everyone to follow. When we look back at what we've talked about today, we've covered a you know quite a lot all the way around the colon. 
What would you say are the three main points our listeners should take away when thinking about the approach to the difficult colonoscopy? I think probably the most important thing is to pull back often. And as I said, that's the hardest thing for all of us to do is to say, oh, I should probably pull back. And even though you might be advancing very well, um, I try when I turn a corner to say, okay, can I pull back and get a bit of the scope back? Um, Because I'm trying to get to the TI around 70. So the first thing is pull back often. Secondly is don't push if you can't see. So that's the equivalent of the gentle hands. Um, And the third point is deflate your scope often as well. Because again, when we do endoscopy, quite often we tend to overinflate. So in children, it's worth your while deflating because then that actually shortens your scope and collapses the colon over the scope, which then actually makes it easier for you to advance. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you so much. Great, great tips. Also, the uh, concertina. What was the what was the term for chicken? The, the chooks. Foot. The chook. Okay, chooks feet. <laughs> a lot of things learned we today. We have a lot of chooks in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, once again, thank you for joining us. I know our listeners, especially because it's towards the beginning of our academic year. So many new fellows who are just starting to learn colonoscopy. I'm sure they'll find your words of wisdom very valuable. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That was a great episode. Thank you, Dr. E, so much for coming on. Yeah. Always makes me think of like what I can do better. And uh, I, you know, usually the only people watching me do colonoscopy is maybe a trainee if I've taken yep. the scope uh, or or the nurses in the room. And maybe I should actually ask one of my colleagues to drop in and, you know, watch me oh, and give me man. some pointers. Like I so, want to do that theoretically, but what if they give you a pointer and you're like, you know, I don't, I think I'm doing it fine. Ah, you're right. I need to, we need to just be humble, uh, recognize yeah. that we can all improve. And yeah. Yeah. You know, a, like Atul Gawande um, mm-hmm. wrote a great piece in the New Yorker several years ago about getting a coach as yeah. a physician and how rare it is for someone to have someone watching over their shoulder once they're a practicing physician and right. recognizing that we all can improve. And he brought in this, you know, one of his former mentors to watch him operate and oh, that's he got crazy. a whole bunch of advice and actually, you know, took on board, you know, these tips. And he talked about how, yes, it's challenging. Yes. You have to swallow your pride and all of that. Right. But at the end of the day, you get value out of it as a professional. And so. maybe even in like a less personal way, I, I like the idea of auditing, you know, like mm-hmm. we get, I'm sure every program does it a little bit differently, but we get a printout of our RVUs every year, for example, compared to the rest of the division, things like that. And so I don't know. I think this would be something that could maybe motivate people to strive towards better, blah, 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 blah. So I don't know. I think that's a, that's a good idea that you brought up, but anyways, if you don't already be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at, at pediatric GI podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And of course, if you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, uh, you can do one or more of the following three things, you know, tell somebody about the podcast. You can leave a review on Apple podcasts, which really help people discover the show. And uh, last on our Buzzsprout page, you, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGAM foundation. Uh, you of course can also get there through www.naspgan.org and the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things that the NASPGAM Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research, public education uh, programs, and more. 
And since I suspect most people don't listen to the end, uh, maybe we could also plug a uh, sneak preview. We are working on a merch website. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you really want to have the words bowel sounds emblazoned on your t-shirt or your hoodie, uh, you may have the opportunity to make that a reality or on your mug, coffee mug. Yes. So watch out for that. And uh, as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to changes with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. Bye.